0: Hallelujah. Did you bring your Bibles? All right, let's make our declaration this morning. This is my Bible. I live by its truth. I walk in its light. I rest in its promises. I'm empowered by its love. And I overcome by the faith produced from receiving this seed sown into my heart. Father, I thank You today for Your Word. I thank You for its truth. But most of all, we thank You for the life that it contains. Your Word contains Your life. And we receive it sown into our heart that we might walk in the life that it produces in us and through us for Your glory in Jesus' name. And somebody said? Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Uh, well, we had a great time with Pastor Dennis, our dear friend, and uh, I, everybody thinks, oh, you're going to get away and get to relax. No, I preach Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, and Wednesday night, and uh, had an awesome time with him, and so just a great time. And he used, to, he used to ask other people to come, and then he started making me do the whole thing, and I said, don't you know anybody else anymore? And... Uh, So anyway, but he's a great friend. Him and Sandy are dear, dear friends. Uh, It's kind of interesting how our lives parallel together. Uh, We both got married the same year. We went into ministry the same year. And uh, so there's just so many different things. We have, our children are different. We have different kinds of kids and stuff. But there's a lot of great things about us in that, that we just uh, blend together. So, (laughs) amen. All right. (laughs) Praise the Lord. Well, this morning, I want to, uh, a couple weeks ago, and with Pastor Dennis, we ministered on abandonment. We ministered on our lives being in seed form and what that means. I ministered to them on taking the leap of faith. And then I talked to them about seasons of opportunity and times of purpose in our life. And I believe as the church that we are coming into a season of opportunity. That the day and the hour that we live in, if we are spiritually awakened and attuned to what's going on around us, this is a great season of opportunity for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to be preached to our world. I believe there's a hunger for truth in our world. People are searching for answers like never before. Would you agree? And they're looking in all kinds of different areas, and so much is being thrown out, and and so much is being exposed as a lie that people are really open to the true. So I believe that we're coming into a season of opportunity. And, uh, but it's important for us to have discernment. Anytime there's an awakening that comes, it comes because people can discern the times that they are in. Jesus said to, to, to Israel as He was there in Jerusalem, He said, if you had known the day of your visitation, And if you study church history and the history since since the time that Christ was here, you find that there are seasons that that God moves and people awaken to that. And then there's a great move of God and there's a great harvest that comes into the kingdom. So I believe we're living in that time when God wants to bring a great harvest. How many have been praying for someone to be saved? You have someone, you have a friend, a family member, a co worker, somebody, but you're praying for them to be saved. I believe we're, we're coming into the greatest harvest season that the church has known for quite some time. And so I want to walk you through this this morning about the age of discernment and the day of awakening. I'm going to read some things to you from A.W. Tozier this morning, and uh, it's interesting about his life. He was born in 1897, he passed away in 1963, he lived for 70 years, and uh, But he wrote a book in 1949 called The Pursuit of God, and it was a ground-shaking book, and it is a standard, really, for Christian life, and I believe every Christian should read it. If you've never read the book The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer, I would just encourage you to get it. It's just a small paperback book, and it's interesting about him and the impact that it has, and it's recorded that he wrote most of it while on his knees in prayer seeking God. You know, something amazing happens when we really seek God and not just talk about Him. Amen? And uh, I'm, I'm stealing a line from my, my friend, Pastor Tim Delina, from Times Square Church in New York. But uh, he, I saw a clip by him the other day, but it fits into the message that we're talking about. How many know that Jesus died not just so we would attend church on Sunday morning? The purpose of being a Christian, Jesus didn't go to the cross. He said, man, I'm going to go to the cross, die, suffer all this pain and all this agony and all this torture so that men can be saved. So I get a few people every Sunday morning get together and talk about me. How many know that His purpose for our life is a little bit bigger than that? Amen? And so we want to live to fulfill His purpose. But in order to do that, we have to be a people of discernment and we have to be awake to the times and the seasons that we are in. So look at your outline with me this morning. People in our world today are in search of answers for life. Who we are, where we come from, where we're going, why I'm here, who, what am I, what is my purpose in life, is there really life after death, are we alone in the universe? And they're looking anywhere and everywhere for answers to no avail. Or in other words, they're in search of their identity, they're looking for value, and they're needing direction in life. Amen? Amen. And a couple weeks ago, I, sh- I shared part of this with the men in our Monday night Bible study. So if you wonder what we talk about, this is some of what we dealt with. And just encouraging us as men of God, that God needs men to rise up in this day, in this hour, and be men of God. Amen. Not, not just church attenders, but be men of God. He needs women to rise up and be women of God. Amen. And, and I believe that there's an emerging generation... I believe the younger generation really is an emerging generation of new leaders that God's raising up at this time. And so what does that mean? That means for some of us that are my age, our responsibility. I mean you know if you where we are in our life, if you're kind of around in me in your fifties and sixties and, and then the next age that comes. After that, if you're part of that, that's our generation. But we've pretty much lived our life. We've had our time. We've had our hoorah moments, if you would. Now it's our time to get behind them and lift them up and encourage them and enable them and equip them to be the next generation of leaders that can even go farther than we went with the Lord. Amen so that you keep things perpetuating. So young people and and, and those of you under our age, our job is to lift you up and encourage you and help you find your identity, your true identity, help you find your true value in Christ, and then follow His direction for your life. So what do we have today? We have endless debates and pointless discussions of reasoning that will not answer these questions. Man has done his best to answer the questions of his mind and to fill the void of his heart with the conclusions formed by his deductive reasoning to no avail. As a result, his heart is still empty and his questions are still unanswered. So I believe that God is bringing the day of awakening is coming, and it's coming with demonstration and power. How many know when you read the book of Acts, the book of Acts was a book of demonstration and a book of power? It wasn't just a word of a, a book. It's not a record of the, of the apologetics of the apostles. It's not, it's not a list of all the sermons that they preached, but, but it's an account of Peter going up to the temple and the lame man there at the gate, beautiful, and being aware that he had received something that he could give away. So he looked at the man, he says, "Look it up." And he says, "Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have, he had an understanding that he had received something from God in such a measure and in such a way that it could be given away to others. And that's what's happened. I believe there is an awakening coming where the church comes back to realize, hey, we've received something from God, and we have it in such a way that we can impart it and give it away to others. Are you with me this morning? So I believe that we are living in the age of the great awakening of the sleeping giant or the body of Christ. That God is calling us forth from the tomb of religious piety and pretense to walk in, into pretense into a walk of power and demonstration. As surely as he called Lazarus forth from the tomb, I believe he's calling us out of the tomb of dead religious experience and exist in, and to come alive in the fullness of His life and purpose. Amen. And what that means, that's why I said Pastor Tim's statement of, that Jesus didn't just die to have people who would gather together on a Sunday morning in a building that we call a church. He died for us to be the church, His living body, in power and demonstration in the earth. Amen. So this is the greatest day for the church to come to life. It is a time for us to come out of our ark of safety and to walk upon the land in the demonstration and power of the Spirit once again. Jesus said in Acts one after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, you're going to receive power and you'll be enabled to be a witness and you'll be made witnesses unto me. Amen? So we're being led by the Spirit, we can show forth acts of random kindness, which open doors to make Christ known in our day. God moves to us by the Holy Spirit, we sense His leading, His guiding, His direction, we move in obedience to that, and it opens a door for us to tell people about Christ. Amen? Hallelujah. So here's my de- declaration today. I'm believing and declaring, let there be in us a hunger and a desire to know Him and to show Him. Amen. I don't want, so it's one thing just to know him, but greater than that, what if we started showing him to the world around us? Amen? <clears throat> so look inside your outline. <clears throat> Here's my desire. May we be walking with God in such a way that we are daily aware of his presence in our life. May it be our goal to actually know him. There's a difference between knowing knowing about somebody, but actually knowing them. Amen? And so that change, when you actually get to know somebody intimately and personally, it changes that relationship. If you have your Bibles, go with me to Genesis chapter 5. And I love this account, if I could give it to you this morning. This is the account of Enoch walking with God in Genesis chapter 5. And I love when I think about this, and when you think about what's happening here, if you begin at the end of chapter 4, verse 25, it says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me, instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. Verse 26, As for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enoch. Not Enoch, but Enoch. Look at this. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. What an amazing statement. <clears throat> so here, Adam and, and, and his son, and, and then he has another. But then men are beginning to call on the name of the Lord. That's what happens in a time of awakening. Men, instead of going through the motion, we begin once again to call upon the name of the Lord. Meaning we get hungry for the things of God. We get hungry for the things of God. Not just going through the motions with God, but really getting hungry for the things of God and to know Him. Praise the Lord. But watch this, if you would skip over to verse 21, uh, or verse 20. So it says, all the days of Jared were 962 days and he died. And Enoch, his son, lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begotten Methuselah, Enoch walked with God for 300 years. Amen. I'll take that. Amen. Walking with God. So he's walking with God for 300 years and begat sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Now what's so cool about this story, <clears throat> through all of this, you read all these generations. Now if you go back to the beginning of chapter 25 you find that Adam was born there and, and, and when Adam gave birth to Seth, he was 130 years old. And then you walk through those generations of every person that was born and when they gave birth to their firstborn and you add them all up. By the time he got to Enoch, Adam, who lived 932 years, he was 622 years old when Enoch was born. And so when Enoch gave birth to Methuselah, that means that Adam was still alive for 687 years, and he lived another 245 years. Enoch lived 235 years. Adam lived five years after Enoch. So that means that Adam alive when Enoch was alive, and Adam was Enoch's grandfather to the fifth power. I'm talking to the men about that. Could you think of what kind of a family reunion that would be? You got all of your grandpas and great grandpas and great great grandpas and all of them hanging out together, and then you got Grandpa Adam, God's man who was formed and not born. God's original man. Everybody goes, "I'm an original." No, there was one original. That was Adam. Maybe it. And so he he was formed, and same thing, same way God formed. Jesus in the womb of Mary, God formed man out of the dust of the earth, and Adam had that time. See, it's interesting that time didn't begin till after the fall. We have no record of how long, from the the moment time began, Adam lived 932 years, but there was no time before they fell in the garden. You have no record of time, it's not, in your Bible it's a couple of verses, it takes you three minutes to read it. They had more than three minutes in the garden before they ate the apple. Are you with me? Or the fruit of the tree. So there's no record of how long they spent in fellowship with God. Because Adam had times in fellowship with God where he heard his voice and walked in, in fellowship with God. He knew the voice of God. He recognized the voice of God. He'd have fellowship with God. Amen? Amen? And had those seeds. So this is what I believe. What caused Enoch in his generation where men are just beginning to call upon a few generations earlier. But there's really not any in-depth relation. Something inside of him as the next generation. When I talked about the emerging generation. Here is Enoch at 65 amidst some people. He's like, that's like being four when everybody lives to be 900. Amen. (laughs) So here he is, he's this young, emerging young man, and now God, something is stirring on the inside of him, but I believe the stir began at one of the family reunions, or maybe several of them. Who knows? Maybe they live in a close proximity. Maybe as a young man, he could go over to great, 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 great Grandpa Adam's house, and hang out there, and say, Grandpa, lift your belly up, lift your shirt up, let me see. How come you don't have a belly button? Well, son, I was formed and not born. That is so cool. God's original man with no belly button. Amen. And they'd begin to talk. And then, Enoch would say, Grandpa, what was it like to walk with God in the garden before? What was it like To walk with God. Now listen, because it said for... Something happened at 65 that Enoch walked with God for 300 years. And that walk was so close and so intimate with God that the Bible says that God... He did not die, that God took him. He was the first man raptured or taken off of this earth without tasting death. Amen? And so people, well, I don't believe in the rapture. I don't believe God kept people away. Well... Anyway, moving back to Enoch. So Enoch, he has such a walk that gets God so attentive. I heard one old preacher say it one day. God and Enoch were out on a walk one day and God just said, Hey son, we're closer to my house than your house. Why don't you just come home with me? How would you like to have that relationship with God? Where you're so close to God, it just says, hey, don't you just be with me? I'll bring you into my presence. But Enoch had this walk with God, but I believe he had it because something began to stir in him and a hunger to know God beyond what was happening in his generation, beyond the rest of his relatives. They're all their lineage. They're, they're, they're all sons of God. They've all been born from the original man of God. But think about this. Something began a hunger. What would happen if something in you and something in me had, to, had a desire to have a a hunger more than just our peers around us, not longer be no longer being satisfied just to fit in the normal crowd, but I want to walk with God and I want to know God. I want to know his voice. Amen. amen. What would happen if that was our desire? I don't just want the label of a Christian, I want to be one. I want to be somebody who is known to be Christ's life, who has evidences of his life in me being shown forth from me. Can you say amen? That should be our desire. So think about it. He walked with Him for all those years. Think about it. I believe it will take a new level of discernment on the part of the believer in this hour. We will have to sharpen our senses and our awareness to what God, to what is going on around us if we want to see this awakening take place. Or In other words, God. it's always amazing that moves of God are called awakenings. We have the Great Awakenings and then the Second Great awakening. When the Wesley's were here, it was the Second Great Awakening. And so a move of God is called an Awakening. Think about that. Ephesians chapter 4, if you want to turn over there. So we need some discernment for the day and the hour in which we live. And so God gives gifts to us. In Ephesians 4, Paul declared that God gave gifts to men. And the purpose of giving those gifts to us, of apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, or God puts a life call upon men and women, and then he sends them to be equipping agents to the church, and the purpose of the equipping agent, that what they bring to the church begins in verse 4, Ephesians 12, in verse 4, for the equipping of the saint, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying building up of the body of Christ. Now watch this. Till we all come to the unity of the faith, To a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness, cry or growing up into maturity in him. Look at verse fourteen: that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness by which they lay in lie in wait to deceive. Or in other words, we have to have a discernment about us and grow up in the maturity of God to walk in an awakening and to receive the power of God displayed in our generation. We have to have that. That discernment. Amen? But what we have today is we have to break out of complacency of just being satisfied with where I am and what I know. There always has to be a desire in our heart as a believer. I should always have an ongoing desire for more. Amen. There's more. We're just The Spirit of God would say it like this, but wait, that's not all. That was cool. But wait... That's not all I have. But wait, there's more. But wait, there's more. I don't know about you, I want the more. I don't want just enough, I don't want to get by, I want the more that God has for our lives in each and every way. Hebrews 5 says in verse 14, it says that we grow to a place of maturity where we have our our senses exercised to be able to discern between good and evil. The challenge is, is that we are inundated daily, embalmed daily with secular information, cultural conformity, cultural acceptance. And so you have to have discernment and have your senses exercised to discern between good and evil. So here's our question. Are we called to debate or to demonstrate? You know, people who don't believe in God want to debate about God. They want to try to talk you out of believing in God or why there's other options or everything. Yeah. So our question is, are we called to debate or to demonstrate? God says this. I don't debate my existence with man. God never debate. God never explains himself. He shows himself. Amen. I don't debate my existence with man. That has always been God's response to the question of man. God has never debated with man over his, over his existence, but he has demonstrated his existence by power. Amen. When God led Egypt, uh, Israel out of Egypt, he didn't debate with Pharaoh. He demonstrated who he was in since ten judgmental plagues. And Pharaoh goes, okay, you can go worship your God. Amen? And so God has always demonstrated who he is by power. Every question to God by man on his existence has been answered by a demonstration. Or in other words, God says, I'm not afraid to be seen. Too many times the church has been afraid to show him, but God's not afraid to be seen. Amen. I believe this. He will reason with man, but he will not debate with him. Isaiah 1 says, come now and let us reason together. Reasoning is not debating. Usually when God reasons, we have no answers to his questions. That's why when you read Job 38 through 42, God begins asking questions. He says, I've listened to all this. He says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Do you know what that statement is in reference to? All the chapters of Job's three friends leading up to that. You have about 36 chapters of everybody talking about God. And God says, who is this that darkens knowledge by word, by darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And he said, then what God actually said to those guys, he said, you didn't talk about me right. The things you said about me were not correct. You know, and there's a lot of that through through what we hear. There's so many different viewpoints about God. I think about it all the time. How do we have one book and come away with so many opinions? Because instead of believing the book, we like to give our opinion on the book. If God would have wanted your opinion, he would still be writing the book. Amen? You would have your name on a a book in here. It would be the book of kin. But fortunately, there is no book of kin. Amen? Amen? So think about it. I don't mean that negatively. I just mean, amen. <laughs> there is no book with your name on it either. Amen. So watch it. Think about it. God does not come to prove who He is, but to show who He is. Jesus did nothing to prove who He was. Jesus never did a sign, a wonder, or a miracle, or displayed any act, Of power. To prove who he was. He did it to show who he was. And listen to what he said. He said if you've seen me. You've seen the father. Here's the question we have to ask ourselves. When people see us. Do they ever get any glimpse of the father. From us. Through our life. How we live. Because we name the name of. Christ, and if Christ showed the Father to the world, our question has to be, who are we showing to the world? Are we doing all right? Amen. So think about it. What did Jesus do? Jesus settled arguments with demonstrations of his love and power. What did he do? He loved the woman at the well just as she was. She was living under the plight of condemnation and the judgment of condemnation by very dignified people around her because of all the circumstances of her life. Being through five relationships. Now let me just say this again. The Bible does not say what happened in those relationships. in did, Jesus didn't even call her an adulterer. But we call her a divorcee and an adulterer when that isn't even in the Bible. And Jesus interacted with her on a higher level than He was even interacting with His own disciple. And He revealed Himself to her first as the Messiah before He even revealed. He made His disciples tell Him who He was, but He told her who He was. Glory to God watch it so he loved that woman at the well just as she was and maybe you're here maybe you have a path maybe you live like me you you had a failure before you came to cry maybe you made mistakes before you came and the world has placed its judgment over you and like this woman instead of hanging around in certain crowds because sometimes the glazes of people and the judgmental glances of people is hotter than the noonday sun I'd rather gather water in 150 degree heat than be around people who are gazing at me with burning eyes of condemnation. Amen? And so that's why this woman was getting water in the middle of the day and Jesus meets her there. But what does he do? He restores her and gives her back her identity and her value and sets her path, feet on the path of purpose for his life. And she goes and leads the whole city out to him. Hallelujah. Powerful. What about number two? What about the woman caught in adultery? He didn't condemn her. He just lifted her up and said, Hey, woman, go and sin no more. Let me give you something. Power as I was preparing this message. I, I, I have a friend when we worked at the concourse, I mean at, at the golf tournament, the senior PGA tour there, the gold rush. I became friends with a man named Roland Riddle. And Roland, Roland is 20 years older than me, exactly. Well, 20 years and... In, in, just under a couple months I'm in May his birthday's in September and uh, so when I met him he was almost 70 and uh, just this uh, last week he just turned 90 so I thought about him and I called him I said hey Ron how you do he called me back and uh, he he loves the Lord and he goes Don you know I'm a Catholic I said I know it Ron but I know you love the Lord said yes I do I love the Lord and, uh, but he said, I-, I had this vision. God gave me this vision. You believe in visions, Don? I said, yes, absolutely wrong. This was just yesterday afternoon. And he said, I had this vision, and God showed me the history of our family and, 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 and Leona's family and, 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 and everybody's sin in our heritage. A hundred years back, took me back a hundred years and showed me people and all the mistakes they made. And then he showed me about repentance and about the forgiveness of God. He said, Don, if you ever preach on the woman caught in adultery, then encourage the people that God, no matter what your past is, no matter what your sin, because all me, he's telling me, everyone has sin in their life. Everybody has sin, but if you're sincere, and that's God, he'll forgive you and he'll restore you just like that woman. So Roland preached a message to me as I'm preaching at you today. So watch this. God is moving in a man who many would think and judge say, well, well, Catholics don't believe in God. This is a man that loves the Lord with all his heart and he's giving me a prophetic word and I'm declaring it to you today. He said, Don, if you get a chance, declare it to your people that everybody's a sinner and they need a savior and they need to repent and ask him in sincerity for forgiveness and he will restore them. Amen. Amen. That's what Jesus did with the woman at the well. Think about it. He healed the lepers as a sign of His will. Lord, if it's Your will, it is. What's the will of God? He showed them the will of God. He healed the withered hand to the end of the debate on what was right to do on the Sabbath. Is it right to heal on the Sabbath? Is it right to go against your tradition? Or does your tradition trump the will and the power of God? Jesus said, I'll tell you what the will of God is. Stretch forth your hand. Amen. He healed the woman who had been bound for 18 years by the devil on the Sabbath because it was right. The woman's in there and the Bible says in Luke 13 says they're watching him to see what he would do. They know this woman is bound. And yet here are all the religious people using her. Wow. And here she is bound by the devil. And just as what Jesus said, is it not right that this woman who is in covenant with God as a seed of Abraham, that she would be set free? And especially on this day, the Sabbath, she has a covenant right not to be bound. Her right is to be free. And what he was saying to them, you should have set her free. And that's what happened to the church today. The church should be walking in the power that sets people free. People should walk to the door of our sanctuary and encounter a living God. Not dead tradition. Hallelujah. In John chapter 14, Jesus said, If believe me, can't believe me for the words that I say, then believe me for the works sake. Believe me because I've demonstrated who I am to you. You see, we are to know Him and to show Him to our world as well. The book of Acts, as I said, is a record of the actions of the apostles and the disciples, not a catalog of their apologetics. Could it be that we have reduced God to a lifestyle concept? Many people have lifestyle Christianity. Amen. I have the t-shirt, I just don't want to live out what it says. Amen. Amen. Why? Instead of revealing Him as a life-changing force. Jesus is not a concept. He's a life-changing force. I shared it with the men yesterday. We talked about temptation at our men's breakfast. And what's the devil after? When you come to Christ and you're born again, you actually enter into another realm of temptation in your life. You enter into revelation on the level of God-in-man temptation. The same type of temptation that Jesus faced. Where the devil offers you counterfeit soil to get to your ultimate good goal. See, did in the wilderness. So here, so here, so here. And, and you can get there. It's a good goal. You can achieve it. It's not to do evil, but to get to your goal in an easier way. You're doing all right. Because he's after the life that was in you. The devil is the author of abortion. And not only does he want to abort every natural life, because every child is formed in the womb with purpose by God. God is the creator of all life. And God creates no life without purpose and an eternal destiny stamped upon it. So if God cannot abort a life in the womb, then when a person is born and they receive God's life, born into them, you are born again by an incorruptible seed. Every Christian has a womb on the inside of you. It's called your spirit. And God plants the seed of his word in your spirit. And now Christ is being formed on the inside of you. And that's the life that Jesus is after, that the devil is after. And so, as Paul said in Galatians 4.19, you can write it down and look it up later. He says, I'm praying for you, even as a woman who is travailing in birth. My, my prayer is intent as a birthing pain that Christ would be fully formed in you. The one thing the devil doesn't want is for you to be a believer who has Christ fully formed in you. That you live by the knowledge of what Paul said. Though my outward man is perishing, my inward man. Come on, you have an inward man. If you're born again, you have an inward man. You are a new creature in Christ Jesus on the inside. And God wants that life that's on the inside of you to be manifest outside through you. Here's the challenge. If we would search for Him with the same ardent zeal in which man is searching for intelligent life in space in the universe, he would find Him. Jeremiah said, You shall seek Me and you shall find Me when you search for Me with your whole heart. Now, I'm a pastor. I like when people come to church. But let me just say this. Coming to church is not seeking God. That's not seeking Him and searching after Him. We come to church to encourage, to strengthen one another, to build one another up, to enable one another, encourage us to go out and be a demonstration for Him in the earth. The purpose of of the church coming together is for edification, exhortation, and the comfort of the body. Come on, keep fighting. Keep going. Keep pressing. Come on, keep running your race. Keep reaching forward to the prize. Amen? Keep doing it. Keep going. Don't give up. You can make it. Hallelujah. So we come to church for that. Hallelujah. But think about this. Matthew 7, Jesus said that we are to ask, we are to seek, and we are to knock. Amen? That takes a continual. That, that takes purpose. That is deliberate action to find Him. Now let me give you this tojo. I said you. I was going to share it with you. I put it there in your outline. I believe it's time for us to be living where we have only been visiting. We all like it when the presence of God shows up in the building. Amen. I love what I like about the body is God said he would do something when we come together different than when we're alone. He he brings what we call the corporate anointing. It's powerful. And things happen in this corporate setting, in this place where we're assembled together that are different than happen in our personal prayer closet, in our devotional time, in our individual walk and relationship with Him. And so that's why we gather, to be in that time where the whole body comes together and He speaks to us and He unifies us and He brings us into a a powerful coalition together for His kingdom purpose. Glory to God. Amen. So watch this. But I believe... If we just visit his presence on Sunday, we miss the purpose of his presence on Monday through Saturday. Tozier said this, the tragic results of settling for less than described is as follows. He said this, we end up with shallow lives, hollow religious philosophy, the preponderance of the element of fun in our gospel meetings, the glorification of men. Trust in religious externalities, quasi-religious fellowship, salesmanship methods, and the mistaking of dynamic personality for the power of the Holy Spirit. These are symptoms of an evil disease deep within the soul. Now remember, this was written in 1949. For this great sickness that is upon us, no one person is responsible and no Christian is wholly free from the blame. We have all contributed directly or indirectly to the sad state of affairs. Listen, this is too powerful. We have been too blind to see, or too timid to speak out, or too self-satisfied to desire anything better than the poor average diet with which others appear satisfied. Glory to God. Whoo. To put it differently, we have accepted one another's notions, copied one another's lives, and made one another's experiences the model for our lives. Amen. I don't want that myself. I, I want to know Him. Amen? For myself. look. At, and for more than a generation, the trend has been Downward. And we have reached the low place of barrenness. Worst of all, we have made the word of truth conform to our experience and accepted its low plane as the very pasture of the blessed. Wow. So it will require a determined heart and more than a little courage to wrench ourselves loose from the grip of our time and return to the Bible ways. But it can be done. There's another great man of God, prophet of God. His name was Leonard Ravenhill. Anybody ever hear of Leonard Ravenhill? You want to hear what he said? This is, now, now, just remember, he's saying it, not me. I'm just reading it. Amen? He says, they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He says, this is what he said. It's, it's a little article he wrote. Have we no tears for revival? Now, now, please don't take this personally. I mean, I can't help it. I always try to preach nice messages and they always come out like this. Direct. Amen. But watch this. Watch this. What that means is, is that if you look at our culture today, the average, do you know we have about this many people as well that go to our church? We have about less than half of our people that actually call this church home here today. And the average attendance on a national average is our life. We've gotten so preoccupied with life that we're losing, less time, we're losing more and more time for God. We're finding less and less time for God. If you go back just a couple generations, just a 20 years or so you go back, people live from God out, not trying to get God in. People have their life centered and focused around God. Today we try to find time in our life to put some God in it. So how can we have no tears for revival? It says, They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. That's a divine edict. This is more than preaching with zeal. This is more than scholarly exposition. This is more, more than delivering sermons of exegetical exactitude and homiletical perfection. Such a man, whether preacher or pew dweller, is a... "...is appalled at the shrinking authority of the church in the present drama of the cruelty of the world, and cringes with sorrow that men turn deaf ears to the gospel and willingly risk eternal hell. In the process, under this complex burden, his heart is crushed to tears. The true man of God is heartsick, grieved at the worldliness of the church, grieved at the blindness of the church, grieved at the corruption in the church, grieved at the toleration of sin." In the church, grieved at the paralysis, the the prayerlessness in the church. He is disturbed at the the corporate prayer of the church no longer pulls down the strongholds of the devil. He is embarrassed at the church folks no longer cry in their despair before a devil-risen, sin-mad society and say, why could we not cast him out? The church is saying, what can we do? We look at what's happening in our schools, look at what's happening in our society. Maybe if we just had a desire for a day of demonstration. Amen? Many of us have no heart sickness for the former glory of the church because (coughs) (coughs) we have never known what true revival is. We are stagnant in the status quo and sleep easily at night while our generation moves swiftly to the eternal night of hell. Shame on us. Jesus whipped the money changers out of the temple, but before He whipped them out, He wept over them. He knew how near their judgment was. The Apostle Paul sent a tear-stained letter to the Philippian saints, writing, I have told you often and now tell you even in weeping that they are the enemies of the cross. Notice that he does not say that they are enemies of Christ. Rather, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. They deny and diminish the redemptive values of the cross. There are many like this today. The church of Rome does not stand as an enemy of Christ. It traces heavenly on His holy name. Yet it denies the cross by saying that the Blessed Virgin is co-redemptive. If this is so, why was she not crucified also? The Mormons use the name of Christ, yet yet, yet they are astray on atonement. Have we tears for them? Shall we face them without a blush when they accuse us of our inertia at the judgment? Seat saying that we were your neighbors and an offense to us, but not a burden because they were lost. Salvationists can scarcely read their flaming evangelical history without tears. Has the glory of the evangelical revival of Wesley ever gripped the heart of the Methodist today? Have they read the fire baptized men in Wesley's team, men like John Nelson, Thomas Walls, a host of others whose names are written in the book of life, men persuaded and kicked in the street, men persecuted and kicked in the streets when they held their meeting. Yet Yet as their blood flowed from their wounds, their tears flowed from their eyes. Have the holiness people set a guard at the store of the beauty parlors, lest any sister should enter to get her hair curled? While a block away, there's a stirring of prostitutes trying to sell their sin racked bodies with none to tell them of the eternal love. Do the Pentecostals look back with shame as they remember when they dwelt across the theological tracks, but the glory of the Lord was in their midst? When they had normal church life, which meant nights of prayer, followed by signs and wonders and diverse miracles and genuine gifts of the Holy Ghost. When they were not clock watchers and their meetings lasted for hours, saturated with holy power. Have we no tears for these memories? Or shame that our children knowing nothing of such power. Our denominations have their glory revival days. Think of the mighty visitation of the Presbyterians in Korea. Remember the earth-shaking revival in Shantong. Are those days gone forever? Have we no tears for revival? Wow, what a word, amen? Where are those preachers today? Where where, where is that Word being proclaimed? Come on, I'm telling you, when the Word of God is proclaimed and something stirs in our heart, I I heard a moment the other day where I read in chambers this morning, he said, never let conviction, miss. never miss the opportunity of conviction in your life. When God stirs something, if we just hear normalcy, if we hear things like that, but it never moves me. If I'm just satisfied with where I am, then I bought into the status quo of the culture that is around me of what has been normalized as Christianity today, and I don't desire to break out. Many times I hear something, I was sharing Pastor Dennis about some different areas and stuff we're talking. He says, oh, I've never seen any of that work. I said, well, I'm not asking you for your opinion. So, so many times, even people around us, are you listening to me? Even people around, when you say you're believing for a healing, somebody said, Well, I know somebody who had that and died. Well, I wasn't asking for your opinion. I was looking for your agreement, but many times people base their experiences and they want their experiences. They want to bring your faith and, and your desire and your passion down to their level, because if you get too passionate, if you have too much desire, you're going to make them uncomfortable, and people don't like to be uncomfortable. But I'm telling you we need an awakening where the church is no longer going to be silent by the experiences and the complacency of others. Hey, Ben, I'm trying. It's time for us to once again become aware if the worship team will come back. To become aware of the universal presence of God in our lives. Jacob woke up at Bethel. And he said, Surely, the presence of God is in this place, and I knew it not. This is nothing more than the house of God. And I'm telling you, God wants to invade the lives of His people personally, and corporately with this presence. I'll give it to you like this. The Lord gave me this a couple years ago, but it's apropos for today. It says, we can no longer afford to be ashamed of the truth and intimidated by the lie. The world has been put off by phony displays of charlatans who have learned how to prey upon the emotions of men and build for themselves little kingdoms that they call God's. But God is creating a stir and a hunger. A desire in His people for Him. This will be a movement that will not be led by the charlatans and pretenders, but by His Spirit. This will be a new purity of Pentecostal power that will not be plagiarized by performers looking only to draw attention to themselves. It will be the flowing through true believers who are desirous to see the lost come to Christ and truly know Him. Men and women who will once again say in the boldness of the Spirit, look at us. Because they believe in Romans 1.16 and they're no longer ashamed of the Gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. I believe a demonstration is at hand. Say, Pastor, what do you mean by that? I believe it's time to walk with God in the fullness of His presence. I believe it's time to look back. I found out this. I believe it's time. Enoch returned to the faith of his... Not his father, not his grandfather, not his great-grandfather, great-great-great-grandfather, great great But he went back to great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather Adam and said, Papa-papa-papa-papa. I don't know how many papas you had to there? Tell me what it was like to walk with God. And there's something that happens in our lives. All of us grew up. How many grew up and thought your parents were stupid? Come on, you can admit that. You're old enough. They're not going to spank you now. Amen? And then all of a sudden, you got a little older. You got in your mid-20s, and you realize, hey, they, they're not that stupid. I might not to go back and get some of that advice from them. And then you find yourself out. You get towards your 30s and your 40s. You realize, oh, man, I'm becoming my parents. So we, we go back because truth never changes. And it doesn't mean the parents don't make mistakes, but what they imparted to your life with truth, you go back and you lay hold on that truth that was imparted to you, and you build your life upon that. The same thing with faith. There's a place in the church revival always comes when we go back to the faith of our fathers. We go back to the foundation that still stands firm today. We sang it, "Christ is my firm foundation," and when we go back to that firm foundation, we get back to the things that are unshakable, and we begin to build again on that. And we're no longer caught up and enamored by the glit and the glamour and the the culture of our day. We just want to know God. We want to walk with God. We want to know what it's like to hear His voice coming towards us and hear Him saying our name. Amen? Hallelujah. So I believe that's what it takes. A time to walk with God in the fullness of His presence. It's time to know Him and to make Him known by more than just our word. It's time for us to hunger for truth and to live for it with all that we have. No longer to let others define our lives by their experiences and the limits of their awareness and understanding. It's time to become dissatisfied with the low place of barren religion and hunger for the more of God in our lives to truly walk with Him. Jesus did not come to die for us just so we could be good Sunday morning or in a building we call the church He came to transform our lives with the reality of his of his life living in us and through us So that we might be seen so that he might be seen by a lost and dying world and to demonstrate his love to them His love to them and for them through our lives Or in other words to be witnesses unto him. Would you stand with me this morning? Any time God stirs in our lives, it's always important to respond to that stirring. If God ever checks us about something and convicts us about something, respond with repentance. Respond with change. Respond with an action. That's why Paul said, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice. Keep presenting. Keep pressing. Keep reaching and stretching into the things of God. Maybe this morning, I, I, I just, if you're here, and I'm not saying I'm never going to lead anybody in a salvation prayer again, I was sharing with the men yesterday morning, we were talking about overcoming temptation, and you overcome temptation real easy, you say no. You say no but the power to say no comes from saying yes i'm able to say no to the temptation because i've said yes to someone greater than what you're offering me i said yes to the greater so it's easy to say no to the lesser amen and he keeps offering you Give you an offer, but you keep your yes strong. You tell Jesus, "I I say yes, I say yes, I say yes." Every day you get up and you say, "Yes, here am I, Lord. Use me, send me, God. I give you my yes today. I give you my yes today. And because I gave you a yes, you empower me to say no." Amen. So it's just you overcome with a no. Amen. But nobody can pray your yes for you I told the men yesterday I have a moment that I go back to Tuesday night in a prayer room at New Life Assembly in Marysville God speaking to my heart God had been pulling on my heart I'd made a failure of my life and our church had a prayer room behind the platform And I went into that prayer room. They were having a prayer meeting in the sanctuary, but I went into the prayer room. Back then, we didn't have padded chairs. We had metal chairs. Amen. Well, they have pews in the sanctuary. They're metal chairs. And I just found a metal chair, and I turned it into an altar. And I gave my life to God. I gave my life. Nobody leading me. I knew I'd made a mistake, and I personally repented and gave my life to Christ sometimes we want somebody else to do it for nobody can give your life to him but you the same way jesus says nobody takes my life i'm laying it down that's how you get saved you make the choice that day to give your life to christ and then you have a mark in the sand and you're able to say the devil devil you lost and you lost in my life on december 13 1978 because there's a place in the sand of time where i knelt down and i said lord jesus i give you my life for the rest of my life i will live for you i will serve you i will honor you i will do whatever you ask me to do And I made a vow to Him and I've kept that vow for 45 years. And when temptation comes you have the power to say no. Forty-four years ago, I stood at an altar with my wife, and I looked at her, and I said, I give my life to you for the rest of my life, and my yes to her, and I reaffirm it, and I reaffirm it. I love you. I love doing life with you. I choose you for the rest of my life, and so you affirm it in your marriage. You affirm it in your relationship with God, but nobody can say your vow to your spouse for you. You make your own vow. Amen. Amen. When I do weddings, I make people look at each other. I'm doing their vows. They're looking at me. I said, I'm married. You need to look at each other. Amen. I can't say this for you. You have to give your life to her. She has to give your life to you. So this is what I'm asking. They're going to lead us into worship song. Maybe you're hungry like me for an awakening maybe you're no longer satisfied with the status quo or maybe you're here today and you have a past and you need to let God forgive you and cleanse you and I'm just gonna open this altar today we've missed and lost the call of the altar being comfortable with moving to God once he's moved towards us if God's touched your heart today then would you just respond to his touch upon your life? If he's moved in such a way to touch you, would you just move in response to him? Maybe you just need to rekindle, restir, stir Paul said to Timothy, he said, Timothy, there's a gift inside of you. Now stir it up. Maybe you just need to come and find a place of prayer. Say, God, I'm going to stir up what you put inside of me. I don't want to be just a casual, quasi-name only. I want to be a real believer. I want to be like Enoch. I want to walk with you. So as they lead us, if you need to find a place of prayer this morning, a place of dedication, a place of commitment, a place of renewal, a place of re-energizing and revitalizing you're relating Move to God this morning. In Jesus' name.